research going plant-based uncover uncover the uncomfortable um you know we call it the vegan trifecta and uh it's three documentaries uh, they're really easy to watch the first one is what the health uh, the second one is called cowspiracy uh, and then the third one is called forks over knives and each one of them touches on a different subject about being plant-based uh, it talks about health it talks about the environment and talks about the ethical reasons behind it that's kind of really what will get the gears going and it's progress not perfection so start looking at, at, at swaps you know one thing that I really had to get over was food aversions and why they even exist um, and they exist because of culture that that's it welcome to the modern longevitarian podcast I'm your host Scott Stanfield I have the privilege and honor to interview some of the most successful people in the fields of human performance and longevity. You can listen to The Modern Longevitarian on your favorite platforms. If you have Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and subscribe. Also, please stay tuned for an important message from our sponsor, Electrolife. How can an executive chef trained at the famed Culinary Institute of America, who was born in Wisconsin, and worked in restaurants from New York to Dallas, make the 180-degree shift in her diet and become a vegan. In this episode, we explore just that. We also learn how Chef Katie Horn's diet has changed over the years and why. We also learn the positive impact of becoming a vegan has made on her husband. The best part of this interview is that we get to share some recipes, a tofu hack, poke some fun about where vegans get their protein, and talk about making great food no matter the diet. I encourage you to listen, learn, and explore the links in the show notes on modernlongevitarian.com. Now, my interview with executive chef and management coach, Katie Horn. On today's show, we have a CIA chef. For those of you who don't know what that means, that is a Culinary Institute of America. This is the Ivy League of Chef Schools and household names that we all know and love have graduated from this institute, such as Anthony Bourdain, Roy Choi, Amberell, David Burke, Michael Mina, Michael Simon, Marcus Samuelson, Kat Cora, Charlie Palmer, and Michael Chiarella. The list goes on and on. Not only is Chef Katie Horn a graduate of this institute, she is also a vegan. And we're going to talk about why we should eat more plant-based and why she's a vegan and just go down this trail. Chef Katie, welcome to the Modern Longevitarian. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, this is going to be, and I say this every week, this is going to be amazing because it is, because I spent all this time researching and putting together questions, and so I get so excited about this, and uh, I don't even know where to start. Um, let's just, how did you get in the restaurant business? What do you love about food? How did you get to CIA? I mean, let's just start with kind of an origin story for you so we can lay that down, and then we can go from there. Yeah. I got started in the restaurant industry uh, when I was 15. My, breast, my best friend's mother worked uh, as a secretary at a catering company. And so she was working there on the weekends. And of course, I wanted to hang out with her. So I started working there. And that's just kind of where I really got my first job, my first start with it, my first taste of the restaurant industry. Um, in high school, I applied to one school that was the Culinary Institute of America. There was no plan B. There was nothing else I wanted to do. Uh, if I didn't get into that, then I was in some serious, serious trouble. But I did get accepted. Um, I remember the day. It was November 12th. I was very excited for that day. So I got accepted to CIA. And like you said, um, it's considered the Harvard of culinary schools. And back when I went to school, 
um, I went to college, there weren't that many options that were the caliber and the had the intensity that I wanted. Um, there was the Art Institute, which is, I don't even think in existence anymore. There's the Art Institute, there was Le Cordon Bleu, uh, which were all national chains, if you will. And then after that, there was the Culinary Institute of America, and I knew of New England Culinary Institute. And those are the only ones I even knew of. So this is, you know, the, the early stages of the internet. Um, Facebook wasn't around yet. MySpace wasn't around. We didn't have this giant social network where I can say, okay, well, there's 8,000 culinary schools to choose from. I only knew of that one. And the reason I knew of it was because of a restaurateur in Milwaukee where I grew up, Sanford D'Amato, and he had graduated from there. So uh, I knew it was the best place to go to. Um, I graduated high school a month later. I was at the Culinary Institute of America was awesome. It's in Hyde Park, New York. At the time, it had the signature Hyde Park, New York campus, as well as a campus in California. But the one in New York is the one that had all of the programs and stuff. The campus in California at Greystone um, had a lot of like adult education, continuing education type of things, but they didn't have like a true college, uh, which is what I was going for. Well, I have to say, I've had the privilege to work with some graduates of CIA over the years. And the flavor profiles and the layers of flavor that come out of their dishes is second to none. Um, how cool was it going and walking up down the same halls that all these famous chefs had uh, attended as well? An important message from our sponsor, Electrolife. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite supplements on the entire planet. Magnesium with Immune Boost, made by Electrolife.com. Why Magnesium. When it comes to nutrient deficiencies, magnesium ranks at the top of the list. It's right there with iron, iodine, and vitamin D. Just like sodium and potassium, magnesium is an important electrolyte. Electrolytes are needed to balance the water in our bodies, balance our body's pH level, and move nutrients into our cells while moving waste out. If you're keto like me, you truly know the importance of electrolytes and hydration. Believe it or not, Magnesium is needed for more than 300 biochemical reactions in the human body. Some people say up to 600. Let me tell you why I trust this specific product made by Electrolife for me and my family. This supplement contains a high-grade magnesium plus potassium and over 60 other minerals that are key to our health. It's produced from the Great Salt Lake. And no, you can't just go over and dip your water bottle in and start drinking lake water. It takes three years from the point of capture to the point that this becomes a consumable supplement. Nowhere else on earth will you find a richer source of minerals and nutrients, and that's the truth. The other reason I love this magnesium is that it's easy to use. Just add it to whatever you're drinking. All you need is two droppers full each day. If you want to get started with one of the best magnesium supplements on the entire planet with an added immune system booster, Click on the link in the show notes or go to electrolife.com forward slash shop. That's electrolife with a Y is spelled E-L-E-C-T-R-O-L-Y-F-E.com. And now back to the show. It's amazing. It, it really is awe-inspiring. The campus has grown and changed uh, since the time that I've been there. I've been out of the school for almost 20 years now, and 
um, you know, they have like a pavilion and, and a fountain and all these other things. But when I was there, it was a giant brick building, Roth Hall. You go down a, a hallway and you see these open kitchens and you're just surrounded by all these like-minded people and all these famous chefs and you get such intensive training. I can't stress that enough. Um, you go to school five days a week for eight hours a day. You're in the morning or in the afternoon classes and that's it. You go through the same class for three weeks, you pass that, then you go on to the next one. So it's a ladder progression as you go through things. And one of the things that uh, they really stress upon is product knowledge and before you even get into the kitchen, you have to do, you know, math courses and there's English and writing and restaurant law and all these other book type classes. It's not just kitchens. Um, but one thing you go through is product knowledge. And I have, I think, three spiral notebooks of notes and you learn about everything. Um, you know, it, it, even now, if I come across an item I haven't worked with or I don't know what it is, the first thing I do is go into those notebooks and try to find it. And it's just, it's amazing because you have to try everything and taste everything. I remember I tasted MSG. I, I knew about MSG when I was 18. I didn't really know what it was or I knew it was just bad and it was in cheap Chinese food. That was my association with it. I didn't realize uh, that it had a taste. It had a flavor profile. So when you're learning how to use your taste buds, uh, they they give you um, sugar and you put sugar exactly where you want to taste sugar and they'll give you salt and you put the salt on your tongue where you want that. And with MSG, they're trying to explain uh, what umami was that, that it's almost like a rich, buttery, fatty, savory. Like it's, I call, I call it the biscuit flavor. It's like when you have warm, fresh biscuits out of the oven, you kind of get that emotional attachment to it. That's what MSG does. And so when they put the one drop of MSG on you, it's like, oh my gosh, I know what this flavor is. And that's how you can now describe it to people. So you get all of this foundation. And then when you start getting into the kitchens, um, you know, you're, you're learning recipes and techniques. And it's, it's so much more about the technique than it is the actual dish. You know, I always, I maintain, I can teach anyone to make any dish, the methodology, the methodology doesn't change. It stays the same depending on what you're doing. You know, if you're making cookies, you're most likely going to use the creaming method. So if I look at a recipe now, I can glance through it, say, okay, creaming method, I already know how to make it. I don't have to read it step by step by step. And then I can focus on, okay, this is the acidity of this chocolate. If I switch dark chocolate up for milk chocolate, it could affect how this works in it. And so they really give you this incredible knowledge that allows you to play around with different ingredients and different flavors with different acidities and saltiness and sugars and all these other things because you have such a solid chemical foundation for it all. Yeah, what I most, most people don't understand is that no matter if you're making a cookie or if you're making, I don't know, a vegan, you know, plant-based burger, you're making a cocktail, you're making a dip, it's all about balance. Right. As you were saying, you're changing the chocolates out from a dark chocolate to a milk chocolate. You're having to adjust the recipe to balance that out. And, I, and, and so for me, flavor comes from the same place. Right. It comes from that knowing that what is in each thing and, and adjusting as you make adjustments in the recipe going forward or, or understanding what those things are. Now, I, let's talk about veganism a little bit. Right. You grew up in Milwaukee. Wisconsin. I, I imagine there's a lot of cheese growing up. You weren't uh, 
were you a vegan growing up or no no not at all Uh, my sister was vegetarian for about maybe 10 years or so we always made fun of her she couldn't have burgers i grew up on i'm from the dairy state i grew up on cheese and milk and eggs and beef um I mean, not having cheese at a meal is unheard of in Wisconsin. You always have cheese at every meal somehow. It just makes it way there. So for me, I've been vegan for three years now. Um, I say I'm a practicing vegan. It it does take practice. Um, You know, if I'm out to dinner and there's not a lot of plant-based options for me, sometimes I have to default to vegetarianism and I will – do everything I can to scrape off cheese or get it without cheese or whatever it would be. Um, I do not eat any animal product or any animal flesh of any kind. I just, I can't do it anymore. Um, I slowly started weaning myself off of things, but as a chef, I get chastised a lot for it. I get told, um, how can, how can I do my job if I can't try beef or if I can't eat the chicken? And it comes from that giant foundation. I know exactly how much salt to put on a piece of chicken if I have to go put it on a grill. That's my job. Um, And I don't necessarily always need to try it. I I can just know it by looking at it. Same thing happened to me when I went keto. And I'm doing pantry line checks, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and we're here at 7,000 feet. And not not every time a cheesecake will be cooked properly. So we had to cut through the middle of every batch of cheesecakes and we were supposed to taste it to see if it was actually cooked properly. And um, it was one of the funny things is uh, the owner of the hotel um, asked me to come up with a dessert for a barbecue we were doing. And I'd seen this recipe for this uh, no-bake cheesecake, ironically, we're talking about cheesecake, uh, no-bake cheesecake in a mason jar. And I'd seen the recipe, I think it was on Yahoo Foods or something like that a couple of years before and I had it saved. I went and pulled it up and printed it, had the chefs make it. And the owner was like, so astonished. She's like, how in the world can someone who doesn't eat dessert come up with a dessert this amazing? And I'm like, well, I looked at the recipe and I've been doing this for so long, over 20 years. I just know. Right. So I've, I've been, I've been there too. So um, what made you switch over from your um, dairy based, hundred percent dairy based <laughs> Wisconsin diet. I'm just joking. But uh, to to being a vegan three years ago, what made you switch? Um, Well, my my CEO at the time um, had gone vegan and it was, it was very out of character. And so I said, why did, why are you going vegan, man? This is weird. This goes vegan. We hate vegans. Like vegans are terrible. And uh, he's like, cause I know too much. And so that one phrase is what I say to people now when they say, how can you be a vegan chef? Because I know too much. Um, When you really dive into it and go down that rabbit hole, it is incredibly overwhelming, the misinformation that has been out there. And I wouldn't call myself a conspiracy theorist or, I mean, I'm an average person. I mean, I I read the news. I read multiple sources of news. I really try to, to educate myself, but there's a documentary called What the Health? And that was, that was the one defining moment, I would say, that led me to veganism. And um, that, was, that started it. So what I did is I watched it, um, decided I was going to try to cut these things out. And then I just started doing more research. I listened to every podcast I could find and still do. I read books. I read articles. I watched as many documentaries as I could. And 
as I went down it, it originally started for health benefits. So um, rewind back about four or five years ago, I went on a high protein diet, very heavy on the meats, very heavy on like raw veg, uh, low carb. So I went high protein, low carb. I was doing um, CrossFit. I was working out five days a week. I was bulking up like physically, like with muscle, but I was losing some amount of weight. Nothing, nothing terrible. I think it was like five to 10 pounds, you know, no, no, nothing too major. And I went to the doctor for just my annual physical and I had high cholesterol. And at the time I was 30 years old and I, I was just beside myself. I was in tears and my doctor um, called me and, you know, gave me the results. And I sat there and I started crying and, and, you know, she was talking me through it. She's like, it's, you're young, you can still do this, you know, tell me about your diet. So I started talking to her about it and I explained to her, you know, how I was eating beef and chicken and fish, um, massive amounts of protein, you know, having burgers and lettuce wraps, that type of thing, uh, low carb and higher fats, but as much good fat as possible. Lots of avocado, olive oil, based dressing is that type of thing. And my cholesterol went up. So I had to lower my cholesterol. And the first thing she said was, um, cut back on your meat consumption. I was like, but I, how am I going to get my protein? And she's like, you'll find it. So I did the math. I did the numbers on how much protein I needed. And I realized I was getting almost triple the protein that my body needed to be healthy. So that was the, the health kicker for me on it. Okay, let's try this. Six months into um, cutting out meat. And I didn't go cold turkey. It wasn't like this was, you know, bada bing, bada boom. The next day I'm 100% vegan. I took out things like ground beef and I took out all pork products. That, that was one thing when I learned about the intelligence of pigs, I, I couldn't do it. I got rid of pork 100%. Um, beef I, I eliminated as well. That was really easy. Chicken took a little bit longer because um, chicken is such a convenience food. And I realized that the reason I ate chicken is not because I loved chicken. It was because it was easy. And I thought it was, you know, good for my body and this and that. So six months later, my cholesterol dropped back down to normal levels in six months. So that solidified why it was important for me. And when I tell people I go vegan, the first question they ask me is, where do you get your protein? Not how do you like it? Not how long have you been vegan? It's the first thing. Where do you get your protein? And I tell them all of the sources that I get protein from. I get a normal amount of protein. Some days are higher than others. Some days I'm a little protein deficient. Other days I have a ton of protein in me, but it's not anything insurmountable. Um, and then as we started eliminating dairy, that was the last thing to go. Um, pizza is my all-time favorite food. I would fall on a sword for a pizza. I love, love, love pizza. So first thing we did, got rid of meat toppings, went just to vegetable toppings. Then we went to light cheese. Then we went to no cheese and no cheese pieces bread with tomato sauce on it. So that didn't work out very well. But what I noticed is when we would eat pizza, I would have congestion that night and I'd wake up with congestion. And so when I started eliminating dairy completely went away. I mean, I breathe clearly. Um, one thing that was just absolutely shocking during this is as we started slowly eliminating foods, and moving away from them um, was my husband's allergies. My husband had the worst allergies I've ever seen on a human being in my entire life. Um, he would have sneezing attacks so bad his eyes would swell shut. There were days he couldn't leave the house. 
Um, there were times he would wake up with just a swollen face and, you know, he, we went through the allergy tests uh, and they said it was seasonal allergies. And I, I just, I couldn't believe that someone had to live with this for the rest of their life. You know, being on a cocktail of, of allergy medicines, I said, humans are designed to live in this environment. What are we doing wrong? So to put it in perspective, we did a bunch of elimination diets for him as well. And we found out that my husband has a major food sensitivity to chicken and chicken products so much so that um, if he has an egg, you know, sometimes there'll be an egg in something um, or he'll just, he'll just have one once in a great while. And to this day, if he eats one egg in about 15, 20 minutes of consuming that egg, he immediately has a sneezing attack. 15 to 20 minutes. That's, that's all it takes. If he has a piece of chicken, um, he will sneeze. If he eats a, a chicken breast, his face will swell up. He will start to sneeze, things like that. And so his seasonal allergies are 100% eliminated now, 100% no issues. So we, we've now attributed the fact that he cannot have chicken products. So that's how we eliminated chicken. Mm. That's an amazing story. You know, I, I do similar things where I've done elimination diets over the years. And, you know, I've even, you know, I've been vegan for six months. I've been carnivore for multiple months. Uh, and I feel better on both. I will say that uh, I do like the way I feel with um, less inflammation when I'm more plant-based than when I am uh, carnivore-based or um, eating a lot, of, a lot of meats or animal products. Um, and, and because I'm keto, I, that means I don't do honey as well. Right. So I don't, you know, so when I go plant-based, I'm almost vegan in a lot of ways. And, uh, and I've said that as a joke for a number of years. Now you answered a couple of questions along the way, because the first, one of the things I was going to ask is where do you get your protein? And that's because I've been <laughs> vegan before. And I know that you get asked that question all, all the time. Um, and I was going to ask you about, um, your husband's diet, if he was vegan as well, um, and see, um, you know, where, where that fits in. Um, gosh. So let me, let me talk about where I get my protein from. Cause I think it's really important that people understand the only thing that vegans cannot consume is vitamin B12 and do your own research on how vitamin B12 is important to you. I won't, I won't wax poetic about all of that, but Essentially, you have to get it from animals. Um, it's not found in nature, and it's an evolutionary type of thing that we just happen to need now. So I get my B12 out of nutritional flakes, or I will take a supplement if I feel the need for it. Um, but protein, there's protein in so many plant-based things, you know, lentils, spinach, black beans, you know, beans, really any variety. And tofu has tons of protein and I hated tofu. I don't think I ate tofu until I went vegan. I think I had it twice in my life because it was terrible. Uh, then I learned how to cook it and cook it really well. And now I, I can't imagine. Um, there's a lot of processed vegan products out there. They're very expensive. Um, going vegan in the vegan community, we have junk food vegans. We have the vegans that eat veggie burgers and veggie dogs and, they're looking for supplements to essentially crap foods. Uh, burgers and hot dogs are not good for you. Well, plant-based burgers and hot dogs are not good for you either. They're just a better choice, but that doesn't make them great. So when you go down that rabbit hole of being the junk food vegan, yeah, you get tons of sources of protein, but you're also eating a lot of processed stuff. So as you 
get familiar into plant-based living, you start to realize that, you know, there's a ton of stuff out there that you can make. And there's a ton of products out there that are ready to eat that are more whole plant-based and less processed that give you the protein that you need. There are a lot of different plant-based products out there, but finding the least processed ones is a process. And it's just part of kind of the vegan journey. Can I give you uh, my latest tofu hack since I've been more plant-based over the last little bit? Yay, tofu hacks. Yes. The tofu hack. And I never thought I'd be seeing this live in the world, but have you ever heard of freezing the tofu, right? Overnight, you freeze it and then you thaw it out the next day and then you tear it apart. Then you can pan fry it. And it actually, to be honest with you, it tastes like chicken. Uh Yeah. Yeah. When you actually Uh, put it through that process, it actually gives it more texture uh, of that versus it being um, more of a, where you, something you're cutting into cubes, you actually can tear it apart and you get this pulled meat aspect of, of it. And, and especially let's say, okay, you freeze it, then you thaw it, then you press it. Okay. That way it will absorb whatever sauce you put on it. And, you know, you know, I make authentic, you know, buffalo sauce with Frank's Red Hot and butter and, you know, no high fructose, you know, added ketchup in it. And that's where we stop because my daughter is 12. And so she doesn't want super spicy buffalo sauce. And we make buffalo tofu or I'll put barbecue sauce on it or we'll put it in a stir fry, you know, those, those type of things. And it's a way to get protein. Now, here's the interesting thing you talked about earlier, calculating your protein. I was listening to Dr. Gundry gosh, it was probably about six weeks ago. And he was talking about protein intake. And, you know, then you also can look at the blue zones, which is the areas of the world that have the highest population per capita of people who are over 100 years old. And their protein intake is a lot lower than it is here in America. We've been brainwashed and believing we need lots of protein, especially if you're doing CrossFit, working out, trying to build muscle, those type of things. And um, the, the interesting piece of this is, is that I've been eating for probably over this last six weeks, on average, probably around 30 to 35 grams of protein, and I've lost zero muscle because there's a couple of things that are, that are happening. So when people say, where are you getting your protein from? It's like, I could have a couple handfuls of nuts and get enough protein for the day, right? Mm-hmm. It, you don't have to like have, like even people who are, you know, the ketogenic diet, even a well-formulated ketogenic diet, and I'm doing air quotes here, you know, has a high fat, moderate protein, low carb diet. And that would put me in a range between 80 to 120 grams of protein a day for my size being five foot 10 at, you know, 165 to 175 pounds, depending on how much muscle I have at the time. And, or how much fat, either way you could go, right? But but my point being is I've been hovering around, I, I think the highest day I've had is when we had sushi and because I don't eat rice, I had sashimi, I had 86 grams of protein. That was the highest, which would be my lowest range based on, you know, what a normal moderate protein diet is. Now, I I love this quote from Julia Child. I saw it the other day. It said, everything in moderation, including moderation, right? So it's like, um, and and by the way, she didn't go to CIA. She went to Little Cordon Bleu in France, right? So it's, um, but but my point being is that um, we, we are actually, eating our own protein in our body by recycling cells, right? Our gut lining recycles itself in every three days. So even though you may not be eating animal protein, you're actually, you're, you're digesting it in your system because your body's natural 
um, uh, processes of replenishing itself with fresh cells. And that's one of the things that, that happens. Um, now you mentioned fake foods and, um, and, and those things. I, I think that on some level, there's even easier to be a, a healthy mediator on some levels because people who go vegan or vegetarian don't know how to really eat that way. So they eat really poorly and they become these junk food vegans, junk food vegetarians, and eating highly processed foods. And I did that in the very beginning. Now, I want to ask you the next question because this took the world by storm, um, our restaurant world by storm, which was Impossible Burger. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, if you like it, not like it, did you sell it in the restaurant you worked in? You know, so let's talk about the Impossible Burger some. So there is a major, major revolution happening in America, and it is definitely headed towards plant-based for a variety of reasons. Um, as far as the impossible products go, I, I like them. Um, it's, it's still junk food. Um, so if I'm having the, the impossible meat patties and stuff, you know, there's, there's a lot of processed foods in there. So it's a splurge item. I don't live off of those things. When I first went vegan, I was a junk food vegan because I was so used to eating burgers and fried chicken and steaks and, um, you know, sausage and things like that. So I went to the foods that I was familiar with and I quickly, quickly learned that one, you're not going to be healthy. And two, it's really expensive. Um, so imagine, you know, if you're making a burger, you might put lettuce, tomato, onion, mayonnaise, ketchup, pickles, mustard, caramelized onions, jalapenos, might have bacon on there. You know, you have all these ingredients and those ingredients add up. So when you're putting on a meat patty versus a plant-based patty. It's not for the health. You're making that choice more so for the environmental impacts at that point, more so for the um, animal rights types of issues associated with, with slaughterhouses. So if I'm eating an impossible burger, which I love, I'm actually going to cook them tonight. Um, that's something I'm going to have once every, you know, couple weeks or like once a month or something like that. But um, I remember Beyond Meat had come out um, uh, with a vengeance and working in the restaurant industry, I had access to getting um, wholesale pricing on it. So I bought a whole case of them, which I think was like 40 or 80 patties, threw it in our freezer and we would make burgers, you know, two or three times a week because it was easy. It was plant-based and it was a comfort. You know, we were still so uncomfortable in the lifestyle. We hadn't gotten in it very long that those are the foods that we were craving. I think it's a great step in the right direction, but just because it's plant-based doesn't mean it's healthy. Right. I agree with you. I mean, it's, you know, what I love about Impossible Burger is that it's chef created and, but what I don't like about it, actually it looks and feels and like meat so much that even people who are very strict vegans who haven't had it in a long, have meat in a long time, they would actually send it back. And want a refund, right? They'll get something else, get a salad, or they'll be turned off and then had this whole recovery process we had to go through. Hey, I had no idea you're having Impossible Burgers tonight, but what do you, what's one of your favorite dishes? Because I'm thinking is like, maybe we can put the recipe in the show notes or on the blog so people can get that. So let's talk about what a real Whole Foods vegan CIA level chef would create for themselves if they had a Sunday afternoon to like do all the prep and do all those things and layers of flavor in. So what's one of your favorite plant-based dishes that you create from scratch? General So's tofu. 
<laughs> so let's go. Keep going. Yeah. So I, um, I buy extra firm tofu and I put it in a dish towel or some sort of paper towel. And then I press it down. I'll just put my cutting board on it with some canned vegetables or what I have laying around. And I let it sit for about 30, 45 minutes. Uh, then I cut it up into cubes and, you know, like you were saying earlier, you can take the frozen technique and freeze it, but I just cut it up and then I do a half cornstarch, half panko breadcrumb um, breading. And I literally just roll it in there, kind of push it into it a little bit. I saute it in uh, grapeseed oil until uh, it's nice and crispy and it takes a minute. You could deep fry them, but it's really messy and it's a waste of oil. So I just, you know, turn them over, make sure they're nice and crispy on everything. And then I make my sauce, which is, you know, brown sugar, soy sauce, you know, we'll get the whole recipe and put that digitally. Um, and then I just make, you know, a cornstarch layer with that to thicken it up. I mean, the sauce is, is the same, whether it's, you know, with chicken or steak or shrimp or tofu, the sauce is the same. Uh, then I toss it all together with some steamed broccoli and it's, it tastes just like General Tso's chicken. It is such a guilty pleasure for me because I used to love that when I lived in New York just getting New York style Chinese food. And I'll do that with, you know, sesame tofu, general sauce tofu, orange tofu. I mix up the sauces, but the methodology stays the same. Right. The process is the same. It's funny. I was, um, gosh, this was a couple years ago and it was one of the, probably the last times that I was actually sick and I was laying on the couch scrolling through Netflix. And there's a whole documentary on general sauce, you know, chicken, the whole dish, right. Where it was created mm -hmm. It's not even a traditional Chinese dish. It was like an American or Taiwanese invention and, you know, all those things. And this was before this. Well, wow. Let me think about this. This is before I was keto. So this was, oh, it was like five years ago, actually. So, because I remember making, you know, this recipe from allrecipes.com. That was, yes. really, yeah, <laughs> was uh, had like a four and a half star review. 37 people had made it. And I saw all these pictures and, we of course got all the antibiotic free and organic chicken that we could get. And we made it from scratch and rice and broccoli and the whole thing. And um, my kids fell in love with it because we don't actually eat out at Chinese restaurants a lot. You know, it's just not in our normal rotation. And um, I haven't really figured out exactly now, maybe with monk fruits and erythrol, I can maybe reproduce that with um, in a low carb version of it, but I'm excited to put your recipe out there because I know that um, as you just kind of glanced over those steps that most people don't cook in a way that CIA level or trained chefs cook. And so I'm excited to, even though it's not in my wheelhouse, I can convert that over to um, a low carb um, for me to try at home and, and do it that way. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is, is take a, a, traditional recipe and make it vegan. Um, when I make bolognese, I, my husband loves Italian food. Like we absolutely just will eat as much as possible, but it's very carb heavy. It's very meat heavy. It's very dairy heavy. So uh, if I make bolognese, I will sub out lentils, mm -hmm. no taste difference. You know, if I'm making chili, I will crumble up tofu and sear that. And it comes out just like ground beef. So what I started to do is I just started swapping out one ingredient. So the recipe essentially stayed the same. I would just take that little um, meat out of it and replace it with something that I knew would get me a similar result without affecting the flavor. That's amazing. You know, most people don't think that way. They just think, well, I can't eat meat. I don't know what to put in there and how to do this. And having these, you know, knowing what to substitute in there is, is what people really need because, and, and that's the whole purpose of me talking about these things is because um, I want people to know that they can, you know, just make these changes. And just because mom and dad ate this way, or just because, 
you know, your region eats this way. I mean, you're in Texas. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, slow and slow beef brisket growing going on in your world, right? I mean, <laughs> it's like yeah. I grew up in I grew up in South Carolina. I remember, and I I actually wrote this in my bio for my about page yesterday. You know, um, being um, pescatarian is tough for someone from South Carolina who is basically weaned off breast milk with pulled pork barbecue with a Carolina gold sauce, all the French fries you could eat, right? Sweet tea, that whole thing. And for me to like go, I'm going to give up all of those things um, was a, a tough, a tough road to go down. And I've slayed those dragons years ago. I mean, this is start dating back 15 years ago when I started doing all this stuff in and well, I was even, you know, vegetarian when I was in college as well. I, and that was more of a economic reasoning thing. I could get a veggie sub for less than $3 at, at, at Subway foot long yeah. and it would be two meals for me. But, but, but my, my point being is that you don't have to eat meat to get everything you, you need to be, to live healthy. And, and referencing back to blue zones, they don't have a lot of protein and they don't eat a lot of animal, animal protein. I took a course on the Mediterranean diet. You talk about eating Italian or eating um, that, that type of food. And what most people don't realize that the American version of a Mediterranean diet is really an American standard American diet because the Mediterranean diet that dates back 80 years ago, that's producing these people in like Sardinia, Italy, who are over hundred years, which is a blue zone. There's a, another Island in Greece that is a blue zone. The people live over hundred years old. Um, they ate red meat eight times a year eight times a year, not eight times a week, right? Eight times a year and they couldn't afford it. That's one reason why. So special occasions, they would be or why they would actually slaughter the cow for a wedding to have a really nice dinner for that. So it was a, a splurge, if you will. So, um, you know, us in America, and I think this is a, you know, uh, something that got passed down from the depression. Our great grandparents, you know, or some people's grandparents um, went through the depression. It was actually, um, they felt like they had arrived uh, when they could put meat on the table, right? Yeah. They had actually recovered from that. And so that's something that actually got, you know, that got passed down from generation to generation. And is part of the reason why we've got ourselves in this problem where we're doing lower fat, higher carb. We are, um, and actually doing more, way more animal proteins than we should because we should moderate these things in a certain way. Um, gosh, do you miss anything from before you were vegan three years ago? Um, I mean, I'm so used to it now. The convenience was hard at first. Um, you know, being 30 years old and turning vegan, it's, you're so used to cooking a certain way and so used to how things are that changing it is difficult. That's why when we first went vegan, it was junk food veganism. And then I was like, well, this is terrible. Our health isn't improving. So that's when I started really Googling vegan hacks and sources of protein and how to get through this and how to get through that. And to touch upon what you were just talking about, um, it's a little bit of history on, on food consumption. This is something that I, I love. Uh, let's go back to... 1900. Uh, we still had essentially intact family units. Um, we were, we were minimal dairy, minimal meat consumption. It was very high veggie, very, um, high carb and the, the animal fats and the fats that we would get, we had to consume them because we had such little amount of it. If you got four ounces of meat, that was a lot. 
back then, you know, 120 years ago, we just didn't have the domestication of animals that we do now. You know, you go into the depression era and you ate whatever you could get, you know, then that generation, um, you know, produced baby boomers and baby boomers had it ingrained in their heads. You eat, you clean plate club. You know, how many people grew up with a clean plate club? You eat everything on your plate. You don't waste food. Food is a gift. It is precious. Um, that's, that's kind of how that whole thing started. And then you get into 1970s and that is when the meat consumption in America skyrocketed and it skyrocketed. I, I encourage everyone to do a little bit of research on this and check out the McGovern report. Um, it's, it's all public knowledge. There's no conspiracy or anything like that, but it, it basically dives into the USDA and the USDA was a marketing um, organization to market agriculture. Uh, now the USDA is a regulatory or it's associated with being a regulatory operation. So in the McGovern report, uh, it clearly stated that uh, meat consumption should be at a minimum. Um, but that didn't go well with the USDA's uh, recommendations and trying to market meat and things like that. So a lot of the campaigns that you, you see are because of the American Beef Council, um, the Dairy, Dairy Council. I mean, who remembers the Got Milk uh, campaign? That was launched because milk sales were in decline. Uh, it was not launched for any other reason other than dairy industry was um, taking a hit. So they got athletes, they got celebrities, they got everyday people involved. You know, we have spokes cows and things like that. I remember going to the grocery store and there was a big got milk um, cow there. This is Wisconsin. So we have lots of cool dairy displays. So <laughs> I, I definitely encourage people to, to kind of dig in deeper because we are so ingrained to think and, and just accept the information that comes to us at face value that I thought we were supposed to have meat. I thought we needed dairy. I thought we needed milk. I mean, I was raised in Wisconsin. I had milk every single day. Milk was part of my culture. Um, and now to, to find out that the amount of protein in milk is not good for our bodies. Uh, something like 70% of the world is lactose intolerant. Um, you know, genetically, it's just not great for our bodies. And this is all public knowledge. Again, you can find the research out on this. But once you start to kind of dive into why we make the food choices we do, you realize how little control we have over the marketing of this. You know, if you look at McDonald's, you know, I remember going to McDonald's in the late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, the portions were smaller. We didn't have supersize. We didn't have value meals. You know, you would go and have um, a burger and fries, and it would be X amount of calories. I can't remember what it is now, but if you go now, you get the medium fry or the supersized fry, and you get a, a gallon of Coca-Cola or whatever it would be. And it's just been this culture of more, 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 and that culture grew out of the 80s. So if you go back in time, I know I'm going on a tangent here. Um, it goes from, you know, clean your plate, eat all of your food, all of your food. Oh, here we can live in excess. We need more food, more food, more food. So now we have more food and we have to clean all of it. So we're just eating more in general. And when you kind of go through that psychology of it all, you realize how out of control most Americans are and most people in the world are in terms of what they're actually consuming. Exactly. I think, well, Exactly. I think that's why intermittent fasting was such a big thing for me. I mean, I started eight years ago and I lost seven pounds in the first seven days of intermittent fasting. 
because it wasn't what was going to be on my plate or what was on the menu for me that day. And, and as a director of food and beverage at a, at a hospital, I had access to everything that was there, right? I could eat anything I want any time or day. We had to bake chocolate chip cookies every afternoon. I had two of them at two o'clock in the afternoon. But when I started saying, I'm going to go 20 hours with under eating and four hours with overeating in our feeding period or time restricted feeding, as you people want to call it these days, it, it, whatever name you give it, there was nothing on the menu for 20 hours eight hours of that I was sleeping. So what happened was it put in some sort of guideline for me when I was going to eat. And, um, you know, I'm a huge, you know, advocate for um, ketogenic diet as well. And I think that pairs really well for intermittent fasting. Uh, Like for instance, today's day four, I'm doing an experiment of average of 1000 calories per day for 28 days. Yesterday, I had 634 calories. I've had nothing but uh, black coffee today and some water. And it for right now, it's um, past two o'clock in the afternoon, and I, my stomach has not growled all day long. When I was vegan years ago for six months, I struggled really bad. It was a, it was a mighty, mighty struggle for me to be plant-based. Now, I was plant-based um, a month ago for 14 days, and I didn't have the same struggles that I have. I've been... I haven't had but an occasional piece of fish or seafood, some shrimp, smaller amounts, five shrimp versus having what I would normally have. Uh, and, and so I encourage people to look into that, that, that um, fat is, I, I wrote about actually a, a post, I put this up called do the flipping opposite, right? Because what we've been told is 180 degrees for what we should be doing. We were told low sodium and actually it shows in reports and I put a link in this in the post of where we actually need more sodium than what you would actually even imagine what we versus what we were taught as kids. We were taught that we should go jogging when actually walking burns more fat, right? We were actually, there's a new study that came out two weeks ago. I found this out from my last guest on the podcast that saturated fats from whole foods does not cause heart disease. I put a link to that in there, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been, saturated fats have been the bad thing. Cholesterol has been the bad thing. All of those things are opposite of what we actually did. We need three square meals a day with snacks in between. But yet people who are um, fasting are losing weight, right? Mm-hmm. And living better lives, having more energy and have more clarity. We've been told we need a high carb diet. Um, we, and, but yet my, my computer is messed up. Hold on a second. You're good. All right. We've been told we need a high carb diet where people like me have been and other people have been losing weight pound after pound after pound by doing a higher fat, moderate protein, low carb diet. And and so do the opposite. Sometimes we may need to do the opposite. You grew up eating as much dairy as a human could get in their body in one single day for years. And now you're actually doing the complete opposite, which is mind blowing, right? When you start looking at the mindset aspect, you have to shift those things from what we were trained as kids. Now I'm up on my soapbox going off a tangent now. So I'm sorry about, about that. But I think that's what podcasts were invented for to allow people like you and me to, to step up and really start going on that. So it looks like you've got something to say, go ahead. No, just to agree with you, you know, what we were taught was what we knew at the time, you know, and for us to say that we have the same amount of medical knowledge and scientific knowledge that we did 20 years ago is completely wrong. And we need to normalize, and this is a much bigger discussion than just being on veganism, but we need to normalize that it's okay to change your opinion, to change your mind, and to get 
somewhere new with the new information that you have. You know, knowledge is evolutionary. It, it doesn't just stop one day. You know, we didn't discover everything we need to know about the human body yet. I mean, we know about 2% of our DNA. The other 98% we have no idea about. So, you know, getting into all this and stuff, it's so incredibly important to do the research and to really really look into what you're eating and the, and the food and the choices and the sources. And, um, you know, I, I call it, <laughs> I go to the grocery store and now I have such a different relationship when I go and I go there and it's, it's scary to me because I feel like I have this, this secret, this knowledge, this power that I know all this stuff that nobody else knows. And I just want to tell everybody. I think that's why vegans kind of get a bad reputation about being preachy because we find this stuff out. We, we know it's true. We know the science behind it. Um, I don't know any vegan that went vegan on blind faith alone. I, I, I can't think of a single person that I know. And I know a lot of vegans now that were like, oh, vegan, sure, I guess it's good for you. No, like you want to find out. Um, so when I go to the grocery store, I see the displays, you know, it's, it's 4th of July week right now as we're talking. And so I see hot dogs and ribs and bratwurst and burgers and buns and all these processed chemical condiments. And then I go over one more and it's a huge display of soda. And then I go one more and it's a huge display of, you know, s'mores fixins. And it's like, I walk past those and instead of saying, oh, s'mores sound good. I'm like, that is terrible for you. That's junk food. That's junk food. Driving down the road, you see fast food. Fast food, we need to eliminate the word food from fast food. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's not. It is so completely away from actual food now that, that nobody realizes these things. You know, one of the big things that happened to the fast food industry is the amount of beef that, or meat, I should say, that they're required to put into a product. So if you're going and having a, a burger at any fast food joint, um, they only have to have that burger patty legally 60% beef. 40% of that is filler. And legally, they're allowed to call it 100% beef because the beef that they're using is 100%. Um, you know, the black Angus beef is big. Cow is a cow is a cow is a cow. It does not matter. You are still eating a cow. So the 40% fillers that go into that um, cheapen the cost of it. You know, fast food is cheap because it's manufactured consumption goods. Uh, you know, you can go eat a sock and get the same nutritional value as some of the menu items that are out there these days. It, it's just absolutely astonishing um, of what people don't know about what they're eating. So I, I can't say enough, like, please educate yourself on what you're eating and where it's coming from because you have been you have been completely bamboozled everybody myself included i had no idea about so many things because i just blindly believed that the burger i was eating was high in protein it had vegetables on it you know who know like condiments um you know mustard and ketchup and mayonnaise and and seeing the and now i know the process behind those so i try to kind of take some of those away and it can be really overwhelming at first you know it certainly was for me i think that's why i kind of reverted into like the junk food vegan because i was so you know i, I wanted those types of food those foods were comfortable to me well that's the first step in the progression right where you're making better choices because what we're really changing is when we, let's say that somebody goes from, you know, um, a, a Wisconsin or a South Carolina-based 
meat-based diet and they want to go vegan. It's a progression, right? Or someone like me who has, you know, progressed over the years of doing what I'm doing. We were like, okay, for dinner tonight, I subconsciously want a burger, but I have to make a decision. Do I, well, I'm going to have a vegan burger, right? And then next thing you know, it's like, okay, what am I, and it may be years down the road and you're like, going, what am I going to have dinner tonight? It may be right, roasted beets and sauteed um, broccoli over cauliflower rice, right? I mean, it may, be, it may translate into that or migrate into that over the years, but it's not like somebody's going to go from having a burger last week to having a completely like whole foods based, clean, 100% organic or, you know, as organic as it can get or you can afford, you know, tomorrow you can, but most of those people got cancer or a heart disease or something like that. Yeah. And you're, oh, sorry. I I was a director of food and beverage in a hospital. And as soon as people came off clear liquids, and I got a funny story to tell too, they would order comfort food, right? They would order turkey and gravy, mashed potatoes, or, you know, and, and have that. But um, I had a call out in the room service at the hospital and I was manning the phones for a room service. And a lady called down and what happened, our computer system actually, it, when they had a pres- prescribed diet, a patient had a prescribed diet and it would only allow the, the server to ring in things that were on their approved diet. So we had a heart patient come in or call down. I answered the phone. Thank you for calling room services. Scott may help you. And um, she said, I'd like to get a, um, she's looking at the menu because the menu in the room had every food item on there. And so it was my responsibility to tell her what she could and she couldn't have based off what her prescribed diet was. She said, I want a, uh, a bowl of tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. And I said, um, unfortunately, ma'am, um, according to the uh, diet that the doctors prescribed you, that uh, those things aren't uh, on your menu. And she goes, well, I don't know why they wouldn't be on my menu. I only came for a heart procedure. Right? And so people don't understand the relationship with the food that they put in their bodies what I want to tap in on is where you said, educate yourself, because this is huge. There's nobody exactly on the planet, exactly in the place where Katie is right now with her, everything that it takes for her to be healthy. And there's nobody on the same place on the planet where I am. And there's no place for you, the listener, where you are. Katie, have you ever taken antibiotics in your, in your life? Yep. Okay. I have two. But what's the chances that you and I have, have had the exact same number of prescription issued to us for the same exact pills, for the same amount of duration, all those things? Zero chance. All right? So that means because antibiotics killed the bacteria in your gut, right, in your body, in your gut, that your gut bacteria and my gut bacteria are different. Okay? Your gut bacteria was fed a lot of dairy, right? Mine hasn't been fed a lot of dairy over the years, right? So your gut bacteria, your flora, your diversity of your gut is different than mine, right? All those things are different. Um, let's see, your mindset about food is different than mine, right? So everybody's an individual. You have to start where you can wrap your head around. And so you're, everybody's doing an individual experiment on what it takes to live your best life, okay? You may switch over and be 100% vegan because your cholesterol is high, right? Like yours was at age 30. Me, the same thing. I had a fried chicken induced health scare. <laughs> I was working. Um, We've been cooking fried chicken all day at the cafeteria at the oil refinery that I was managing on St. Croix. I had a couple extra pieces that I shouldn't have for my late lunch and my left hand went numb. I thought I was yes. having a stroke, right? 
31, 32 years old. They take me to the nurse on the refinery. My blood pressure is 120 over 80. Okay. And I'm 40 pounds overweight and I'm 31, 32 years old. Right. Just shortly after that, my, or right around that same time, my dad gets prostate cancer. He's age 55. Okay. Um, I switch over to becoming a pescatarian, which is cut out all meats. But what that means is that I had a tuna melt every day on rye, right? With heavy duty mayo, right? <laughs> so, which is not healthy for you, right? No mm -hmm. organic stuff. It was just a crazy thing, right? But my point being is that where you are today is where you're starting and you need to educate yourself, just like Katie said, so you can start like helping yourself live a, a healthy life. And, and, and that's so, so important. So um, Katie, before I ask my last question that I ask every guest on this uh, podcast, um, where can people find you online? Uh, a couple different places. So I have a website, chefkatiehorn.com. And then I'm also on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I do a Facebook, um, but I'd probably say Instagram. You're going to get the most recipes out of me. Um, food posts, things like that. And then my website, um, I have like management coaching and recipes and the, a blog up there. Um, but yeah, definitely on. Okay. That's awesome. Be sure to connect with Chef Katie. She definitely knows what she's talking about when it comes to food. Here's my last question. If uh, you could give advice to people today for one thing that they could do to help extend their prime years or their what's called a health span versus lifespan, what would you tell them? Research going plant-based. Uncover, uncover the uncomfortable. Um, you know, we call it the vegan trifecta. And uh, it's three documentaries. Uh, they're really easy to watch. The first one is What the Health. Uh, the second one is called Cowspiracy. Uh, and then the third one is called Forks Over Knives. And each one of them touches on a different subject about being plant-based. Uh, it talks about health. It talks about the environment and talks about the ethical reasons behind it. That's kind of really what will get the gears going and it's progress, not perfection. So start looking at, at, at swaps. You know, one thing that I really had to get over was food aversions and why they even exist. Um, and they exist because of culture that that's it. You know, generally speaking, um, you know, my mother didn't like spicy foods, so we never ate spicy foods growing up. I didn't know I enjoyed spicy foods. Now I love spicy foods. Um, even, you know, when I first had to try jackfruit, uh, which is a great pulled pork substitute, it's great. I actually think I'd probably prefer it to pork. Uh, I was afraid to try it. Like I didn't, I just didn't know. And I realized I'm like, it's food. If, if it, if I don't like it, I don't have to eat it. You know, this isn't a whole commitment thing. So I would definitely get yourself um, educated on as much stuff as you can. You know, those three documentaries, the McGovern Report, and then really just figure out what steps that you can take. And that can be something as simple as having one meatless day a week or a meal. You know, start small and just kind of grow and grow. And um, there's plenty of resources out there. A great thing to kind of, jumpstart you if you really want to go 100% vegan and plant-based. There's a book called 28 Day Vegan Reset. Uh, that's a great one to really, to really get you started. And the one thing that I will say has been really fun in this process is how my palate has changed. I used to love, love soda. I loved Diet Coke. I loved Coke. Um, I just loved it. I love Sprite, you know, 
And now I, I can have like a sip of Coca-Cola and I'm, I have to spit it out because it doesn't taste like food to me. It tastes like processed chemicals. Uh, and I've, I've noticed I have more and more and more of that um, as I go. So it's, it's been really interesting and really fun to see my sugar cravings go down, my salt cravings um, go down. You know, fried foods aren't fun to me anymore. You know, I, I live in Texas now and going to the Texas State Fair, you know, you get a corn dog and this and that, all these deep fried foods. And I'm like, ugh. you know, you will, you will see a change in yourself. And as you feel better and feel healthier, it becomes more rewarding for you and a lot more fun to eliminate the, the processed and the, the, the bad foods, I'll say. That's amazing advice. You know, I, I want to throw in one more documentary there. I've seen, I started Cowspiracy the other night and uh, went to bed, so I haven't finished it yet. And he did another documentary. I can't remember the, the same filmmaker, but um, one is, uh, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, called Game Changers. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I watched that one, and that, that's also about um, athletes and, you know, really high, um, you know, high producing people, competitive people, converting over to a plant-based diet, 100% plant-based diet. Starts with MMA um, athletes and, and really kind of goes into Olympic athletes and all these different levels. Um, let's see, a powerlifting and strength training. And so it's really, really an interesting thing. I think one of the, the things that hasn't been solved for me is like, you know, a lot of us that, are, that switch over to going more plant-based grew up eating meats. And I don't know if we would still have the same benefit if we, ate, we started out 100% plant-based or not. Um, but you got to make sure you do it the right way, I think, is really the, the answer to that question. But, Chef Katie, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been an absolute amazing conversation, and I know we've both been up on our soapbox and ranting and we're kind of like um, dueling, if you will, about different styles of plant-based. I'm more of a high-fat, and you still cook with sugar and those things. And I agree with you 100% on soda. It's been a decade since I've had a soda and I, um, or longer. And uh, I I can't even imagine what it would like if we was drinking those things now. So, but thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Thank you for listening to the Modern Longevitarian. Please show your support by giving us a kind review and subscribing. You can also learn so much more about increasing the quality of your life today and the quantity of your life tomorrow at our website, modernlongevitarian.com. You can also join our private Facebook group at the link in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Magnesium with Immune Boost by Electrolife. Stay hydrated and get yours today at electrolife.com forward slash shop. Come back next week for another amazing episode of the Modern Longevitarian.